Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey, Consciously family, it's Menachem. Welcome to episode two of season three of Consciously, OG Wisdom, Hope Dealers, Carrying the Light. Today, we have a remarkable guest for you, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, the rabbi, the rub of the Boca Raton Synagogue. When I asked Rabbi Goldberg for uh, a bio so I could tell you about him, he sent me, Ephraim Goldberg, Boca Raton Synagogue, I like it nice and simple. And that says everything about him. The man carries and leads the Boca Raton Synagogue with humility and the Boca Raton broader community with humility and grace. I'm so excited to, sh- to give him the opportunity to share his wisdom with you. Here he is, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Hey, Rabbi Goldberg, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's a great thrill for me. Uh, such an illustrious person on my lowly podcast. It's I don't amazing. know about that, but I, I'm a big admirer, <laughs> admirer of you and your work, so it's my honor to be here with you. Okay, so for the, uh, for the 15 people who don't know who you are yet and the Jewish people, um, who, who are you? Where, you know, let us know who you are. Sure. I have the great honor of serving as a rabbi here in Boca Raton, Boca Raton Synagogue. We've got a large community of uh, about 900 families, which includes a satellite synagogue about five miles away, who are part of our general membership. And what makes BRS, Boca Raton Synagogue, unusual is that while we have all the amenities of a usual shul, we're also much more than that. We're a co- a community that transcends just what you'd expect to get out of a shul. So that's my professional job. I'm the rabbi of BRS and I belong to a lot of local, national, international boards, committees, groupings. Uh, but my biggest pride is my family. I'm very blessed to be the father of six daughters and a little son. Wow. Uh, we had six girls and then my little boy last. And uh, recently, six months ago, became a grandfather. My oldest daughter is married. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and I'm a relatively young, look at grandfather. So uh, Zayda is one of my, my new great titles. That's amazing. And, and you're from Florida? Where, where are you from? No, almost nobody uh, my age is from Florida. I grew up <laughs> in Teaneck, New Zealand. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, Yavna Academy, Frisch, two years in Israel, KBY. YU, that's the story, and really uh, f- got married two years in Israel, finishing my rabbinic ordination, and came right to Boca. I began in Boca at the time. There was a city kolel. I was to start learning, teaching, really get my feet wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sure what I wanted to do. At that point, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be in the rabbinate. But from there, I became the assistant rabbi, and then I became the rabbi, and I have privilege to have been here for uh, a little over 20 years. Wow. So it's really been uh, a major part of your career. It's been my whole career. I, I'm one of the few people that, you know, my whole rabbinic career has been in one community. And in fact, at my installation, I gave a talk and I said, I entered this relationship as I did marriage, planning to have one with no one else, just this. Wow. And as long as you're with me, I plan on being with you. Wow. Wow. That, that must be really meaningful. I, 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 I would imagine, I mean, I, I know a little bit just from hanging around Boca for 30 years, um, that you know, it's just expanded and grown and the community is, you know, mushroomed over the last 20 years. Yeah, you know. the community has really taken off. Just our particular community or our shul, but the whole neighborhood, there's factors for that. It's, I think, on our weather and our lifestyle. Right. Uh, it's the fact that we have no state income tax. We can thank <laughs> New York New York for its weather and its uh, financial uh, governance. Right. It's grown down here. Um, and our community, it's, it's one of the few places in America, maybe the world, 
that is not a shul, but as I was saying earlier, it's really, it's a community. People feel connected. Mm-hmm. They mourn together. They grieve together. They celebrate together. They experience being, uh, in quarantine together and, and experiencing a pandemic together and, and it functions as a community transcending that sense of self. It's, we have, we have a shared mission, shared values, shared vision, and people really, they buy into that. We're a big, big family. And even though we've grown large, um, because of that, our mission borrowed from the pastor Warren is to try to grow larger and smaller at the same time. So we're exploring ways that we can grow bigger in our membership and our impact, but grow smaller in our interconnectedness and feeling community. Oh, there so we already have the first spiritual principle of this episode, which is uh, grow bigger and smaller at the same time. That's yeah, a wonderful thing. Absolutely. So, uh, so now that we got to know some of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the details of your life, um, we try to get to know people kind of at a more interior level. So I asked you to think about a, <clears throat> a place in the world, uh, some space in the world. You know, I use the example every time of, uh, you know, for Jews, the city of Jerusalem is very special. The old city of Jerusalem is even more special. The Kotel, even more special. But then there's like, which stone at the Kotel and why? So I'm not talking about the old city or Jerusalem or Kotel. If it's that, that's fine. It was for two uh, people, but not everyone. But what's your most favorite place in the world specifically and, and why? And what makes it your favorite? It's a great question. And I'm going to give you a hokey and I'm doing so without even my wife or kids on. So it's really sincere. I'm not trying to score points with anyone, but I'll tell you my favorite place is my home. Um, I'm familiar with it, every inch of it. And it's the people who fill it. So the memories, the experiences, it's the relationships, it's the holidays that were celebrated, that were marked. And so kind of wherever my family is, is it, favorite place. I know that sounds sort of cliche and hokey, but, but I really feel like it's the people and the energy that define or inspire the place. But that said, I'll tell you, there is a place that every time I, I go, um, it reaches me deeply and it is in Jerusalem and it is in the old city, but it's not the Kotel. It's the old city square the old days when you had the pay phones there and, and right. there's a few markets that are there and restaurants that are there. Right. I'm a people watcher. I, I like to sit and watch and before we had smartphones or dumb phones, um, back when I was in yeshiva and even at a point, and maybe we'll get to it one of the questions later, when I was in a, in a challenging time in my dating relationship, um, I was in Israel and I sat in that square as one of the best places on earth to sit and think, to just think, mm. to people watch, to be in a whole location, to be watching people on their way to an even holier place. Many are on their way down to the Kotel. Um, some just live there to, to imagine the stories behind the people as they're walking around there yeah. and to just let your mind wander, just be present and to experience. I love, and even today my kids know because every time we're there and we walk through, I'll give them the same speech about which spot I sat and how I took notes and I had thoughts and I remembered there was no phone, there was no distraction, there was no iPod, no iPad and how transformative it was for me. And I, I tap into that every time I go back. Wow. <clears throat> I wonder, um, cause I, I'm that way. Also one of my, my wife and I, one of our most favorite places to go is like the center of, um, of uh, Times Square. There's some like tables and chairs and we would sit, we'll just sit there and just like watch like the, you know, multitudes of people. And I can identify with that sitting in the, in the Rover right there. And in that same way, I, I thought I was the only one, I don't know. So now I don't, I feel a little less weird, but that also tells me that maybe other people are that way. And I wonder what it is and wonder if you have any thoughts about why, why that helps us to kind of observe and think about other people. I think about even like uh, a lot of the people that I work with professionally that are in recovery groups, sometimes just sitting in the room, 
you would think, well, I got to sit there and listen to 50 people and each person's got to share their thing. But yet when you sit in those rooms and you hear other people sharing about themselves, it somehow opens you up. You know, it somehow gives you a different context for what, what, you know, what you have going on. Well, first of all, is that, is that, is that what you think is, is going on for you? And, and why do you think that is? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, particularly now, it's almost hard to transport ourselves back in time to the days before technology. Right. Even especially now, there's so much noise constantly. And to, to carve space and to create some margin where we can just be, it's almost like a relief. We can exhale. Like we, we need it, like the air we breathe or, or the sleep if we're deprived of. So for me, just giving permission to just go and be, and that's the only agenda of being there. Because right? in that rova, in that square, you're not there to sightsee. You're not there to daven. You're not there to meet. You're not, there's no agenda. The whole is just to be. So whether it's a park and a bench in Central Park, like you describe in Times Square, there's a place to sit or, or people go out to a cafe. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. You, you as a, as a therapist probably have a lot more insight than I do. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say, but I know the personality types even now. And one of the ways that this pandemic is really affecting me negatively is I'm sitting in my office right now. It's quiet. Not only is it quiet in my office, it's quiet on my whole synagogue, which is shut down and closed down. And I'm the only here. And you'd think that I can hibernate, go into this. I could produce creative, amazing articles, sermons, classes, thoughts. You know what's sitting here? The eerie quiet is stifling to me. Mm. I'm distracted. I'm not productive. And, and I've all noticed this about myself for the last year uh, or so is that when I need to get creative, I go to a Starbucks. I actually find a noisy, crowded place. That's where I produce my best material. Right. It's, it's really paradoxical because I know, for example, that my wife, um, who's amazing and compliments me in the best ways. I've learned so much from her, but her personality type opposite that if she's in a crowded space like that with a lot of noise, focus on anything. And I, who may be a shtickle D have to be in a crowded place with a lot of activity. So the fact that I can't go sit in some cafe and I can't go to crowded places these days, I have a little bit more space to be thinking and working. And yet I'm much less efficient or productive, at least in my own mind. I'm feeling my creativity a little bit more stifled because I'm really missing that. Yeah, what's, what's fascinating, you bring up the ADD thing, which, uh, particularly with technology, it kind of almost induces us all into some measure of ADD. It doesn't, doesn't mean we all actually have ADD, but it, we all know what it feels like to be ADD a little bit. It's easier for us to identify with. And what's remarkable when you treat ADD is a lot of the ways that you treat ADD is with a stimulant, which seems strange. If the person's overstimulated, why would you stimulate them? But what happens is, what's counterintuitive, is that you stimulate somebody with ADD and suddenly it calms them down. Right, it actually calms them down. It's it's it, and that's biochemically. That's not like a psychological observation. That's just what occurs biochemically. We'd have to speak to a, a psychiatrist to try to understand that, a medical doctor. But but it's it's one of the really fascinating things about humanity. But so I think there's that piece, which is really, which has its own, um, which reveals its own stuff, which is that oftentimes what we think is the best for us is actually the worst for us. And what we think is going to help us level out is actually not. Um, the other thing is that, so uh, yeah. have we just confirmed my diagnosis on air? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we confirmed that you're not ADD. You're just normal. You're just like the rest of us. <laughs> uh, okay. Just checking. <laughs> right. So uh, the other thing is that we just, to realize how much we benefit from other people, even if we're not talking to them, even if there's, there's not this like rich dialogue, it's okay just to be around other people. It helps us. We, you know, our souls maybe are communicating. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the world that really is important for us to realize that we're not as um, 
we're not as, uh, we don't operate as independently as we like to think, you know, and that we really yeah, need other people. I'm, I'm not some mystical person, but I, I, you know, I think of it in the form of energy and exchanging energy, positive energy and negative energy. Right. And yeah, when you're in a room, your energy has, has no place. It's just bouncing off. And, and when we exchange energy and we compound the energy and, and there's a difference around people with a positive energy, with negative energy. And I think we feed off of energy. So um, in that sense, it's, it's been hard this time for me. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so I'm sure as a, you know, you, you, uh, deflected to me is, uh, to give clinical insight, but, but as a rabbi, I'm sure that, uh, stories and spiritual proverbs and, uh, spiritual principles are kind of, that's your, that's where you, that's where you do your best work. So, but if you had to think about like a specific folk story or like a proverb, a saying that a best reflects you as a person, but also something that you drew a guiding principle from that, that really helped you to have the success that you had or to continue on and to face adversity and be resilient? What would that be? It's a, it's a great question. And, and maybe this actually relates to the, the first question and the, and the attention issue. But I would tell you that the proverb or the story is really evolving and changing. Um, when I speak, and I've been very blessed and I'm very grateful and I know it can disappear at any time, but uh, often when I speak, it resonates for people. And, and they'll say to me, how did you exactly what I was thinking about or what I need to hear? And I, and I tell them, and again, it's also a little cliched, but essentially I tell you what's on my mind, what I need to hear, what I'm thinking about, what I'm working on. Mm. So I'll read a book. It could be a secular book. Um, learning a, a Torah source and it moves me, it touches me very deeply. And that's what I go to share. So uh, when I think about something, there's not one guiding one. And that leads me my whole life. It's whatever I'm studying, I'm trying that I can something that will transform me. So it's just cognitive. It's not just esoteric, abstract, but whatever that learning, whatever that study is, you can stop and pause and say, how does this change me? How does that transform me? So that's that. I will say that there are some guiding principles that repeat themselves. Um, one of them is in Kedusha Bali Hachana, there is no holiness without preparation, which many attribute to our rabbi doesn't actually appear in the Talmud or the, that ancient of a text. It's a more recent, uh, and there's debate where it comes from, but there, you can't achieve a level of holiness and even holiness needs definition. But I would, I would define it for our purposes today as meaning. If you're looking for meaning, you're looking for purpose. If you're looking for something transform, transformational, if you're looking for something real, you're not going to encounter without preparation. So whether it's the Shabbos at the end of the week and the effort you have to make, if you don't shop and you don't cook and you don't prepare, you have nothing to eat, the rabbi's uh, formulation of it. Um, or whether it's an encounter with another person that you want to be able to get the motive. But you had, you had shared with me some of the questions in advance because if you was on me here, I would have been prepared. I wouldn't have given it thought. I don't think it would have been as rich as hopefully the conversation be. So every area and arena of our lives, there is of course room for spontaneity, but I think we achieve meaning, purpose, a certain level of holiness when we put in the time to bear. The second one I'll tell you quickly is Sefer uh, Achinach, one of the great medieval authors, back to the theme that Achra Pa'ulos Nimsha Chalavos, that our actions our, our, our feelings rather follow our action. We often wait to feel and then we act on the feeling. But he lays out the principle is actually the reverse. If you start acting, then you're going to begin feeling. He knew that a long time ago. He sees that as the framework of mitzvos. Do craft a lifestyle, cultivate an attitude, and then you'll be to feel those feelings. I heard it recently related to the great motivational speaker. I think we're still allowed to say his name, but Tony Robbins, uh, a couple of years ago, when he talked about a person wants to start running, they want to start jogging, right? So 
every day they say, I'm going to jog, I'm going, I'm going to take up this hobby. I've got to do it. And every day they don't do it. They're disappointed. They feel guilty. They feel like a failure. And he says, your problem is that you see that's something you want to start doing. His formulation is you need to say to yourself, I'm a jogger. I'm a jogger. You own expensive running shoes. You lay out your outfit. You download the jogging app and you say, and now it'd be ridiculous if I'm a jogger who jog. So what jogger doesn't jog and say it's pasnished. How could you be a jogger doesn't jog? So once you define yourself as the jogger, now you're going to start jogging. So similarly, whole Torah is a platform that says, um, do the actions, start behaving in that way. And then the feelings, the emotions, the spirituality are going to follow other than the reverse. Mm. Put your feet first, as they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, a couple things. I, I have no doubt um, that you know every every human being encounters challenges, suffering, um, situations that are tough. And uh, as a rabbi, you know, there's no doubt that you people come for you to come to you for counseling, for advice, for guidance. I'm sure you hear, you know, as much as any mental health professional, as much as anybody in a leadership position, you hear things, and it can make you feel a lack of hope, a sense of pessimism about life. And it's also just being a thinking person. What was an episode in your life that said, oh, you know, I can, I can have hope. I can be optimistic. It's okay for me to be, it gave you permission to kind of be hopeful. It's a great question. Um, I, I really look back at my life and feel I've been, I have Lee Ayanhara as we a very, very, very blessed, fortunate life. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful. The attitude of gratitude is one of my core principles also. Um, but if there's an episode, in my life that was tough. I alluded to it earlier um, and it's personal. I'm sure now at the risk of paying for this later, but I was dating my, my wife um, and uh, we have the most incredible marriage and, and I'm almost grateful in retrospect having gone through this, but she struggled with something that I think a lot of young observant women still go through today uh, because there isn't necessarily the right ship or teaching though it's gotten better. And that is our, our dating was moving along really nicely, really well. Um, we were growing closer. We were so compatible. We had everything in common. There were really no obstacles at all. And it was moving towards our getting engaged. And before we pulled the trigger, I mean, at the point already of, of looking spaces and talking about shape of ring, um, she decided that, you know, even though there's nothing that's bothering me and there's nothing that's wrong, I'm supposed to, right, as a little girl, I read books or novels or, or heard or, or learned from the, the media of the world that you're supposed to feel like you're off your feet or so romantic. You're supposed to hear birds chirping, harps played, and I have those feelings. So even though there's nothing bothering me, there's nothing that's wrong, I feel incredibly close, I'm old with this person, but I have those feelings that they have in all the, the movies and in all the novels and in all the books. And so she said, you know, I can't go and she broke up with me. I was devastated. I was really devastated. That was the biggest, harshest slap in the face, failure, loss of everything I thought was going to be. I basically didn't get out of bed for a week. I was really down. Um, and uh, six weeks later, it's a much longer story, but six weeks later, she called me back and she was where I needed to be. And uh, we moved very quickly, moved and realized it right thing. And thank God we're setting our anniversary actually in a couple of weeks. And, and feel blessed to have an incredible marriage. But that experience of dealing with what was lost, the loss of the relationship I thought I was going to have, trying to remain that it would come back, uh, believing it would, it did come back, and being able to see it in a certain context, 
in perspective and realize the blessing of it was something that I gave some resiliency and really and really helped me in my life. Now I, I, I'm cautious area of sharing the story with you for several reasons, but one of which is that it had a great ending, right? It's happily ever after. Right. And a lot of the times, a lot of the stories don't have that happy ever. So I'll give you the other side of it is um, this past year, I lost a really dear friend, my closest friend, um, Brian Galbit, Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbit. His name is, is, people know it around the world, what an extraordinary person he was. Uh, an accomplished doctor. He actually had smicha, rabbinic ordination. He was a chachamata, a scholar. He had a perpetual smile on his face, the most optimistic, happy, positive person I ever met. And he was a teacher, uh, a close friend that you did nefesh, but really some of those soul brothers who are also your teachers, your inspiration, you go to and elevate you. And and he had the terrible diagnosis, which essentially is, is a term diagnosis of a glioblastoma. And really persevere tenaciously through treatments, experimental surgery, brain surgeries, and lost his battle. But he did not stop smiling and he did not stop feeling gratitude, did not stop feeling optimistic and positive literally until the end, literally until the end. Since passing, um, and even before, but but since there's not a day that goes by in my life that I don't think about him. There's not a day that he doesn't continue to tell me that he what he would say right now about amazing or everything is great or look at the positive or how to realign or refocus or something in a way that brings out the best. So that, that was a story that when he was diagnosed through being really close with his family, flying with them to Israel to bury him and continuing to be extremely close with them, I didn't want to just like they believe that it was not going to have a happy end. How could it be? He was strong, athletic, brilliant, accomplished, revered. How could it not have a happy ending in the end? How could he? Like it was, it was just never going to happen. And yet it did. And somehow life has to go on. But yet he taught us all, gave us the tools for how life can go on with optimism and positivity. So seeing him in that space and continuing on in that way is what gives you that inspiration. Exactly. I think that kind of how could you be more pessimistic than the person who is suffering this directly, right? How could you have less faith or less hope than the person who's actually going through this? How could you? You know, it reminds me actually of a story of somebody whose life you changed, taught me the program and the 12 steps. Um, when you get to the step of submitting to a higher power, there are people who struggle. They're really religiously oriented or they don't have a faith and they can't find their higher power. So he taught me that um, sometimes it's encouraged to find someone who is connected to the higher power and believe in their higher power. Ride coattails, hold on to them. In your struggle, do it. someone else. And for the sake of that step and being able to move past it, hold on to someone else's higher power. So that had a big impact when, when he said to me, I learned that lesson. And this is the application of it is when you feel in your faith, find the Holocaust survivor. Find the person who is actually at the center of a crisis or a terrible episode. And if they have, if they have faith, what right do you have to be struggling onto their coattails and ride that wave of positive then? Yes, yeah, so you see uh, kind of an, an underlying um, theme there in terms of how you're feeding off of other people's energy or giving yourself permission to learn from them or to tap into what they're, what they're doing and, and, and how they're carrying themselves out. So yeah. what I asked you to think about a, a daily practice or a habit that you have that looking back, and this is most useful like in retrospect, because sometimes there are specific things that we do that are obvious, but then there's also like certain things that we develop, habits we develop 
practices we develop. And we, when we look back in retrospect, we're like, wow, you know, that, that really is what helped me. I wouldn't, it's counterintuitive. I wouldn't have expected it to, but I really think that's what, what helped me. So, and, and sometimes it's something that no one else knows about. Sometimes it's something that's silly. Sometimes it's something that's subtle. Um, is there anything like that that you could share with us? What, what's really, what's a habit that you've really, that's really contributed to your personal success? The truth is it really different areas of life, you know, there's public speaking and there's personal interactions and counseling and there's strategic thinking and vision and area has different practices or habits that inform them. But um, the last couple of years I incorporated into my life, um, carving space to this also goes back to what we we're talking about earlier, but putting the phone on an airplane mode, setting a timer at three minutes and just existing for three minutes, remembering that we're a person not to fire profession and not defined by other expectations of us being comfortable in our own skin enough to experience time by ourselves to, to allow ourselves the permission to just be. So I think, you know, three minutes, it's all it takes is putting your phone in airplane mode, taking some deep breaths, returning to our roots, our core, and just existing for three minutes can really rejuvenate you to come back and to have what it takes to get on with the rest of your day. And you really feel like that helps you even like shutting it off for three minutes. That really, that well, really makes a difference. It, when I first started doing that, three minutes, like three hours, I'm not exaggerating. Right. Anyone who's listening to this, go try doing it. And you'll see that after about 10 seconds, you'll be like, well, that was three minutes, right? And three <laughs> minutes literally feels like it's four, three minutes feels like it's forever. Right. And once you get in that bit and it's something that really nourishes you, you that three minute buzzer goes off and you're like, what? It's over already? So I'm not going to tell you that I do it all day. I'm not going to say that there aren't past time that go where I do in it for weeks or months and I've to it. But every time I get to it, I don't regret it. It's something that I think is really rejuvenating. And, uh, and is there anything that you do specifically during that three minutes or is it very kind of open-ended? Usually I close my eyes and try to be uh, focused and, and conscious of my breathing, of, the, of doing some deep, of slowing, breathing down, of feeling heart, remembering that I'm alive. Um, the phone mode is critically because you actually disconnected to, to connect and you've eliminated the ability of being interrupted or disrupted. And, um, and, you know, different times, sometimes you try to think of things you're grateful for. Sometimes you try to not think of anything hardest. Some think through a dilemma or a problem that you're struggling with, but do it in a way that you don't. Let me give you an example, by the way, why this is so critically important mm-hmm. because you're basically using to do something we all you. But many people will tell you, I could tell you that some of my thoughts, my thoughts, whether it's a trying to figure out or plan a speech I have to give, they come the three times. When I'm trying to fall asleep, when I'm in the shower, or in the middle of my shmoda Right, that's the that's the hardest stuff. I get like, uh, it's... So I tried to think through, why, why do they come then? What, what do those three things have in common? You know, the answer is all three of those times, not on your, you're disconnected to everything else. Right. So all, all three of those times, you're really by yourself and by disconnecting, connect to you, and that's when you have breakthrough. Right, wow. Um, oh, you mean, you're saying like, those are the times where you actually allow your mind to slow down, so that stuff just comes naturally. So if, exactly. you, allow, if, you, if you allow for that other times... Right. So you don't have to be in the shower to be disconnected from your smartphone. Right. You have to be falling asleep, to not be looking or reading or listening to something. Right. We're allowed to give ourselves permission to do that other times too. Right. What's, what's interesting about what you're saying is, is probably like even the ritual of putting on airplane mode. 
as opposed to just sitting my phone down, you know, the, right. the, the airplane mode. I have this thing where, you know, it's like shutting off my phone before Shabbos, even if I'm going to put it away. And I'm not going to look at it. It's not there. But right. knowing that it's off, you know, is like that permission to be in that space of, of, of Shabbos, of that quiet, of that, you know, disconnected. I'm, 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 I've been given permission to be with myself, to be alone, to be with my family. 100%. Those rituals... It's the backbone of our whole religion is what seek significant ceremony are actual rituals that cultivate a sense of a feeling matter and expectation and change a mood and a mindset. And we're allowed to, to add additional ones as, as we have technology and things are evolving. Right. Right. Um, so you talked about a lot of the relationships that you had. You talked about the new transformation that you're experiencing, becoming a grandfather, um, and that I'm sure is, is a remarkable shift to being a grandfather for the first time. And you've talked about the nature at which human interaction and human connection and human relationship is so important and so pivotal and could be uh, a marker for us. It could be almost like a, like a way, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, uh, a lightning pole, you know, to kind of connect us with a higher power to, to give us a sense of, uh, well, you know, if the Holocaust survivor can live through this, then I can too. I can, I can make my way through this. So relationships are a theme that, you know, that you've discussed as being really, really important to you. And I'm sure there are specific relationships that are really, really special to you. And um, so I asked you to think about one relationship, any relationship that you want, and thinking about, like, what makes that relationship awesome? And then one of the things you talked about, you mentioned, and this kind of drives at that is, well, anything in a relationship that's awesome is going to require some work. So what are some things you do to foster that awesomeness in that relationship? It's a good question. I have a lot of really special and beautiful relationships in my life, but I'll tell you the, my colleague at, at the synagogue, at Book Throne Synagogue at the shul, uh, Rabbi Phil Moskowitz is the associate rabbi. He's really much more than that. We're, we're kind of partners. And um, over the years of working together, he's just celebrating 10 years here. Um, we've really become incredibly close and not only are we experiencing in real time, the issues of a community together, right? Take this pandemic and this crisis and this challenge and the making that has to go into it and every day figuring out what to do and how to guide a community and where to draw the lines and knowing that you have someone that you can do that with. Um, but one of the special things about that relationship, it's not exclusive to him. I have other colleagues and, but we work closely together is he can you're going through in a way that nobody else can. Not my wife, not my children, not my parents, um, and not others. Is and, and not even rabbis in other communities, because even though they too are going through the rabbinate, they know the experience of the rabbinate, but they don't necessarily know the experience of, of our community. So, of course, we maintain confidentiality. We don't violate um, or breach what people have entrusted in each of us separately. But on the whole, what we're seeing in the community, really, and, and when you can make yourself vulnerable to another when there's someone who um, experiences things you do and, and the highs and the lows and, and the pain, everything between, it really creates a connection. So it's a very special relationship. And, and I don't, it's one I don't take for granted. Like rabbis, uh, assistant rabbis, a lot of rabbinic duos who are in leadership of a shul, there's some competitiveness, there's some tension, there's an, an aid up and difference between them. And we're, we're really, really close friends. And I think it's taken some time. What we, I think what we've both done that has made it special is, there is we're, we're not afraid to be vulnerable to one another. So if each, either of us got an email, let's say, from a congregant who really laced into us, 
and, and it's put us in a really bad place. It's not that we're too prideful to tell the other because, you know, we don't want to look bad that that congregant wrote that. We're able to actually turn to the other to find truth and to, I know what that's like. I, I know what it's like. It's like getting punched in the gut and you can't stop thinking about it and, and it haunts you and you're trying to see, is there any value or virtue in what they're saying, even if you don't like the way they said it. And it's just an example of, of, of really being invested in one another's success, taking pride in the success, uh, being willing to be vulnerable to one another and share when we're not successful and to give feedback to one another. So I really, I value that relationship a lot. That's, uh, that's very unexpected. That's amazing. That's really remarkable. But how, how did you do that? I would imagine, you, you know, you mentioned the way that, I mean, men are competitive by nature, but in this kind of circumstance, a head rabbi, an assistant rabbi, somebody who's, I mean, the rabbinical field is someone who's kind of looking to position themselves in a place of, uh, of authority. And I don't mean in a, in a domineering way, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not, sure. it's not a space without ego. I don't mean an ego, bad ego, but there's, there's ego right, there. So right. how, how did you do that? How did you not allow those things? I know you said it developed over time, but if you had to look back and how did you, I mean, it's very humble. First of all, you're talking about somebody who's, I guess, under you, but at the same time you call him your partner and you, you know, you talk about him, you being close. Was there, were there specific things that you did to allow that to occur that, you know, that you allow that I'll, to foster? Yeah. I'll tell you a few things. Um, it doesn't feel remarkable when I, when I tell you about it, cause it, it's natural for us. First of all, we're both fiercely competitive. I've been said to be a little bit. Comp- so I want to make clear when he and I are on the tennis court is a war. It is competitive and there are braggates and both world. And there are a few arenas, which we compete on tennis among them. And we are incredibly competitive. Mm. So it's not that there's no competitiveness between us. It's just that what we've both learned, first of all, he's a very humble person. He's a humble person. He's a low person. I think loyal breeds the ability uh, to be that way. So the fact here for 10 years, he's had opportunity to go. He's, he's willing and happy to stay as associate, even though he has opportunity, he could lead any show in this country with, with great distinction and success. Uh, but he's part of a team and he's part of a, a partnership. And, you know, I, I love to read business books. One of the ones that was from a bunch of years ago, Jim Collins, good to great level five leadership. But the notion of the level of leadership that says I'm putting the, the effort, the brand, the ideal, the mission ahead of me. So I think both of us try, we don't always succeed. And I'm not going to say it's always easy, but we, the community success is our success. So when Boca Raton Synagogue, when BRS, the brand, when people feel it's meeting their needs, when their lives are changed, they're inspired, when we've been there for them at different times, when the community is seeing growth, then it's our success. And, it, you know, it's important to acknowledge that. We try to, to show gratitude publicly and thank uh, the other for their, for their hard work. Um, and uh, first, remember, I'm doing this interview. I don't know what he would say if you were interviewing him. Right. I hope you would share the same sentiment <laughs> and feel the same way. No doubt. Uh, but I think that... Because of a very large school, so we're both able to find our niche and our space and find our, our students and our Hasidim, so to say. And every Shabbos, we both speak. We have eight services when things will be normal again on a Shabbos morning. And we rotate around which minyan I'm either speaking in. So both of us have a lot of opportunities and neither of us are deprived of those opportunities. We're not deprived of success. And I think that's taken that we've really cultivated. The fact that we play tennis and the fact that we enter and have fun and the fact that we have a friendship aside from the personal relationship is enabled that hope, right? Because before you have a professional relationship, there's gossip and backstabbing and then there's difficulty and power struggle. But to your really close friend and your families are intertwined and friends, then, then how are you going to do a friend even in the professional arena? So 
you know, again, I don't want to be painting a picture that's as copian or not true. It really is true. But, you know, if you were in business with your brother, hopefully you'd realize that if you, if you, if it succeeds, you both succeeded. So you just got to take that mentality. I, I mean, it's remarkable. What I hear, what I hear you talking about is uh, putting your own agenda aside for the, for the agenda of the whole of being committed to the, to the mission that you're on. But you also talked about having fun together and finding ways of expressing your com- competitive natures in other things through sports, through, you know, laughing, things that are fun, finding ways to be there for each other in good times and in bad and, and then even the normative things that maybe sometimes we take for granted, which is expressing gratitude and, you know, deference and all that kind of stuff. So those are, it sounds like there's a lot there that really enables you to have that relationship and signals to him that, you know, you uh, value him as much as he values you, hopefully. I mean, again, and this is how you're presenting it, but I have no doubt the way that you're talking about it that, uh, that that's the case. And those are such remarkable messages. You, you, you use the example of uh, two brothers that are, in business, but there's no shortage of siblings that are in business that are incredibly overly competitive and it really gets in the way of their success. So those are really, really important principles uh, of, you talk about branding, which is really powerful. It's, it's interesting. That's come up a couple times about your, where you see, uh, you draw spiritual uh, inspiration or messaging from the business sector, from leadership in that, in that arena. That's, that's, that's really interesting to me that that's where you draw, that's where you draw some of that wisdom from. Yeah, well, I have an entrepreneurial spirit and it just expresses itself through Jewish communal life rather than in business, which has a much worse bottom line. But um, at least down here, hopefully right. upstairs, it has a, a better bottom line. Um, I, I love it. You know, my father's a, a businessman who was a CFO of a, of a company and I love business and wasn't in cabinet. That's where I would have, that's where I would have gone. So I've satisfied or I scratched that itch reading business books and trying to apply those principles in that way. We use Dean of, um, of Kellogg at Northwestern, once ranked the top business school and management school in the country. The Dean Emeritus was a school for a short time. He had a place here in Florida. And he and me one summer, I participated in an advanced executive program, which was made up of executives from Fortune 500 companies. It was a 30-day, one-month intense program. And I went and, and you know, none of it, I was the only clergy member who's ever been a rabbi, Orthodox Jew. Uh, but I sat there and I listened and I learned about marketing and branding and crisis management, inventory and cash flow maybe weren't as specific to apply to a, a shul or Jewish communal life, but I loved it. I took notes like crazy and it got imagination going and I'm applying all of that to us. So we have a logo and we have a tagline and a brand and, and we're a sense of community. We have a statement and applying all of that, I think that we would advance our mission and right. So we don't measure success by a bottom line or the size of our budget or, or the payroll at a community. We measure success by how many people we're impacting and the quality of the impact and inspiration on their lives. So coming back to the last question, I just want to be clear. I get a lot of covered. It's easy for me because I get covered. It's easy because you invite your show and I get people writing nice emails and I get feedback and at the end of the day, mom is on the top of the stationery. So I want to be very clear. I get a lot of covered and that's what makes it easy for me. If I felt like he was better than me and nobody notices me, I can't keep up. I can't compete. It'd be harder. I think we're both pretty good at what we do and we both have 
pretty good success at what we do. And that makes it easy to share space and, and only be able to enjoy the success of, of one another. But coming back to it, I think having put it in that language of the brand and putting the brand ahead of the people also helps us. And as Boko Synagogue is not known as Rabbi Goldberg Shul, we, right? We all know shuls that are, that's Rabbi so-and-so shul, they don't, where people don't even know the name of the shul. They don't even know the formal name of the shul. They just know it as Rabbi so-and-so. That's not us. They know BRS because BRS is the brand. Uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, we all rise with the, with the, with the rise of the brand. We're all invested in that. So hopefully that's been a part of the secret of our success. That, it's a great principle. It's something that, uh, that I've thought about a lot. It's something I put into practice in my work as well. And I see how it's really, really um, enriching. And even if you're at the top of the heap, when you, at the end of the day, when you surrender yourself to that brand and the brand is the community, it gives each member of the community investment and a part of it. And then everyone's kind of, there is a certain horizontal nature to all those relationships and it creates that environment that um, rewards humility and rewards um, personal sacrifice. And I, and I think that that it's, there's no doubt to me that it's uh, that I, I don't know. I, I listen to you talk and I almost feel like you don't realize how novel it is and how, how you know, it's like, it's remarkably um, wise and how often people can apply those principles to so many areas of their lives, whether it be their family life or in their work life or in their shoe life and in any of the ways in which they engage when you surrender yourself to the banner, to the flag, you know, then that gives you, I don't mean the country flag, but when you, when you, when you, Surrender yourself to a missionhood, a mission statement, and you know what you're dedicated to. It it doesn't take away from you; it only adds to you. And and those I'll are give you an example. I'll give you an example where I got it from. Yeah. Um, and early on in my career, right? To be clear, the overwhelming majority, ninety eight percent, my inspiration comes from resources by and our ancient and timeless wisdom. Right. But of course. That these business books and literary uh, writings are able to express it in contemporary terms that we relate to. And I, and I love therefore that the genres, you know, it's popular. This whole Mike documentary, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I look forward to seeing it because he was such a part of my childhood. Um, one of his great coaches was Phil Jackson and his whole Zen philosophy. And he wrote a book I read many years ago when I was first sacred hoops. It was his philosophy of coaching that was able to bring the best out of those Chicago Bulls teams. I remember in one of the chapters, he develops a principle that he, he said how important it is to articulate your philosophy and that depersonalizes it. So in the locker room training, he taught the team triangle offense. And basically, if someone wasn't running the triangle offense, she sat. And you didn't sit because it was personal to you. You had no reason to complain. If you're on team, you were subscribing to the triangle offense. And if you weren't ready to run the triangle offense, you were going to sit on the bench. And he basically said the thing in family life and corporate life and work life, express what the mission statement is. What's the philosophy? What, what, what are we running here? And then you've depersonalized it. I remember thinking about that and then, and then applying that in our life to say, okay, so the board of directors of a synagogue or your staff of a synagogue or your company, like, what are we trying to accomplish? What's our mission? What's our theme for this year? So now a staff meeting comes up and you say, I have a great idea. Let's run this program. You say, well, that doesn't really work with the theme that we all agreed was going to be the theme this year. Person's going to go home sulking and crying and they never listened to me and they never, it was a very fair that doesn't fit the theme that we all agreed was the theme this year. So right. that was a principle in his book, Sacred Hoops. And I think you can apply that to like, what's our mission? What's our vision? What's our brand? Who are we? What are we trying to accomplish? And we've depersonalized. And that's so critical and key to personalize. It's not a sense of rejection or judgment or marginalizing. It's here's the theme. Here's what we agreed on. 
within that context, we're eager to embrace what you have to offer. Mm. What, a, what a remarkable principle. Thank you. Um, so the last two questions, I'm going to combine them because I've kind of gone different ways with this, but it seems like they tend to be combi- com- compounded and people can kind of choose how to use them. So the last two questions that I have, they're, they're related, but even opposite in a certain way. So part of being excellent, part of being successful in whatever you choose to do, you know, you talked about your bottom line, you know, success in, in a, as a, the head of a, as leading a congregation is not in dollars and cents and it's in other things. And, and each person that is a success is accomplishing in their chosen area of success. So, but, and you're a, you're a very successful person. So as a successful person, there's two things that you encounter. And the question I have for you is, you know, how do you do that appropriately and in a way that enriches and furthers your success? So the one thing is, you know, you start to encounter, um, ego, you start to feel good about yourself. I mean, uh, a, a therapist, a rabbi, a lot of the people I interviewed are, are therapists. And, you know, when we're, you know, when we're in a clinical setting, our clients tend to like put us up on a pedestal. That's obviously not realistic. And as therapists, we're trained to kind of manage that and utilize that. But as a rabbi, for sure, I mean, people, you're the rabbi of the shul. I mean, you're my spiritual leader and guide. And that can get to your head, and 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 yet you're very grounded, clearly. So, a, how do you stay grounded as a person? And then the second question is, part of being a person is that you get burnt out. You know, how do you recharge when those you know those feelings of drive start to wane? And how do you reinvigorate yourself? There, there are two types of rabbis I found. They're the rabbis who take themselves seriously and they're to take what they do seriously. Mm. The rabbis who take themselves seriously kind of were born. They emerged in their mother's womb with a long beard and being ripped to in third person and demanding honor and kavod and, and thinking that certain things are beneath them. And then there are rabbis. Those are my closest friends. Those are the people I love. They take what they do seriously. They don't take themselves too seriously. It's not to say that they're dignified and they don't act rabbinic and they try to live up to the ideals that they're preaching but it means that they never confuse taking what they do seriously with taking themselves seriously. And I try to fit into that category. I take what I do extremely seriously and I never take myself seriously. The point that my children will sometimes based on my behavior be like, I'm a rabbi. I'm spinning them around the room on my head or I'm whatever. Like you're, a, you got to take what you do seriously and not take yourself too seriously. And number one, and number two, you have to surround yourself with really cool we're going to keep you humble and my, my, my wife is my closest friend, closest confidant, my closest advisor. Best thing in the world she ever did was breaking up with me and coming back to me so that <laughs> I would do it right. we, we could do it right when she was ready to do it and had to go through that in retrospect. I'm grateful for it. But, but she is my better half because she keeps me grounded. You know, the old the teaching of Azer Kinegdo, the Torah says it's not good for a person to be alone. You need a helpmate opposite. And our rabbis understand that helpmate opposite means you need to know when to be an Azer, when a helpmate. But you also know that the biggest way to be an Azer is to be Kinegdo. Sometimes biggest help when you're opposite. So you need, you need a spouse or a confidant or, or a mentor who's going to put boundaries in your life and say, whoa, you're not only taking what you do seriously, you're taking yourself a little too seriously and stop what they're saying about you. You believe the hype, you're over. And so I think you need to have good people in your life, your spouse, 
friends who will remind you that you're not the persona that is projected or or the honor of the cover that's bestowed upon you. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's nice. It's delicious. But in the end of the day, you're literally just a person. You put your pants on one foot at a time like everybody. I happen to persons were being very uh, personal on this podcast. I'm not sure what it is, Menachem, though, that you uh, <laughs> did to make us feel vulnerable here. I manipulate but everybody I, into I, feeling uh, comfortable and safe. Yeah. That's it. It's a, it's a safe space. It's a safe space. I'll tell you, I suffer from a little bit of the imposter syndrome. I speak up and say, any uh, now they're going to figure out that I'm, I'm faking this whole thing. Right. Any day now, they're going to figure it out that I am not the person they think I am. Not because I, God forbid, have some skeletons in my closet or I'm worried if scandal's going to come out about me. And, you know, thank God I'm comfortable there. But just in general, that you know, they're preaching, have a large audience and a large pulpit, and you're, you're, you're taking care of people in variable points of life for your wisdom. And at some point you look at yourself and you're like, when are they going to figure out that I'm a total imposter? And, and downsides, imposter syndrome has some downsides to it, but it's really healthy to keeping you grounded and to reminding you that you're, don't believe any of the hype that anyone's saying about you. So those are two core things. And the third, I'll just tell you the final thing is uh, when you said, how do you get through? We deal with a lot of heavy things. Um, more recently of late, I'm doing a lot of, I'm trying to exercise. I've got uh, it's not inexpensive, but it's an investment for health, mental, I have a Peloton and I've been killing it on the Peloton through this quarantine. It's what's keeping me sane. Wow. Um, and thank God I've seen the benefits of it. So getting on that thing and just releasing all that energy in that way. And the other thing that I've always done and I love, and maybe this is one of those non-rabbinic things, I love linked to comedy, clean comedy. There's no shove of it. I can give you a list of names. There are podcasts and there are comedy players and YouTube and there's clean comedy out there. I, I'm telling you almost every funeral I do in the car on the way out of the cemetery, I put on comedy. Mm. Laughter is the best medicine and the ability to remember that you can laugh and to release a good laugh and to let your brain go and to laugh at something. I like sophisticated comedy. I like you know, comedy that makes you think, but literally that gets clean comedy that gets you to laugh. I, I listen to comedy and I'll tell you, it's an interesting thing. Cause I always thought that I was weird. It's rabbi who listens to comedy. What obvious that people love music. They love this. They love that. I actually have spoken to a bunch of rabbis who all have described when asked this question that they listen to comedy, wow. that laughter, laughter being the best medicine, particularly. And I wonder with therapists, you come out of a full day, your brain is fried, you've heard people's problems, you're absorbing some of them. You walk out of a cemetery, a shiva home, a tragedy, a, a deathbed at a hospital, and you put comedy, and you're, you're not being malice or insensitive, you're actually reviving your life a little bit by laughing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing. You know, Chase Taub, who's uh, Rabbi Chase Taub, who I know you know, and uh, you guys have had there, I think, in, uh, in Boca. And um, he... I always quote him saying this because he was the first one to point this out, but he talks about the correlation between humility, humor, and humanity, and which is really a theme of everything we've talked about today and that the ability to kind of be in that space with other people, to be in your own humanity, to be in a space of humility requires a little bit of, uh, of humor. And it's the ability to laugh at yourself, the ability to not take yourself too seriously. Um, those things are so key to kind of just not getting too lost in yourself or in what, in what's going on. Um, so it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear that, but yeah, I think that the right laugh, the ability to laugh at yourself, you know, you talked about that idea, the Azer Connecto thing, and you said it in a way that really connected with something that I don't know if it was this past year when we read Bracious or it was a different point, but it was recent that I used to always associate that Rashi and Azer Connecto that somehow if it was a Connecto, then it was something bad. 
And if it was an Azer, then it was then I was doing something right. If it was a Connecto, and then it dawned on me that both are really enriching and good. The question is how I receive them. Because if I have someone that's 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 safe enough, I don't take myself too seriously enough that that person can give me feedback and say, you know, you're you're wrong in this situation. <laughs> you, know, you know, especially when I think that I'm right and I think that I'm just, you know, it's it's in in certain ways it's way more more meaningful and way more valuable than somebody who who always is there to enable me along the way. I mean, it's, it's nice to have somebody that's supportive and encouraging and, and believes in you and nurtures you and all of those things. But when you have somebody that can like look at you in the eye and you know that they love you and you know that they're dedicated to you and they can tell you straight, you know, you need to take a look in the mirror. You need to look at this or you're wrong. You know, you're not looking at this the right way or look, you know, it's so valuable. It's so valuable Absolutely. to being a person. And that's only possible in that space of humanity and humility and humor. It's only possible. My, my wife and I have a pal um, that she gives me an honest rating on my drusha. So she, she will end and I'll come back and she'll tell me, you know, A plus, I might be plus. She gives me. And, and the first time that I didn't get that A or A plus, I looked at her like, what? And she said, you know, the A or A plus only has value if sometimes you get a B. If you want an answer <laughs> of an A every weekend, then you got your A. And, and similarly, she's so much more just cooking, but she's an amazing balabasta and we host enormous crowds and she makes great meals. And after a meal, she'll say to me, what do you think, A plus meal? And of course, 99% of the time it is. And sometimes I'll be like, ah, you mailed that in, it was whatever. So we have that, we, we laugh about it in that context, but I think it applies to others, is if somebody's only a yes person, they only give you the positive back, you, not only will you not grow as a person, but you're also gonna stumble into problems. The, the rabbis I know, and I think if we look at some of the public figures we know who thought that they were above the law and got into a lot of trouble that sabotaged their own life, it's because the people around them and closest to them didn't stop them. They didn't put a boundary. They never pushed back. They never said, hey, you're flirting with the edge of the cliff. I think you're pushing too far. Um, you know, there's, there's a Jewish media personality, I'll leave it ambiguous like that, who... Um, I once asked because he really does flirt with the edge on a lot of the kind of topics or books he's written or titles of his books. And I said, who's your Rebbe? Who, who do you go like who, when you're not sure that you're on the right path, or maybe this is pushing it too far. And he paused and he looked at me and he didn't have an answer. And then eventually he said, you know, I guess it's my wife. I get feedback from her. And, and I, I remember thinking that you're lost. You're, you're in big trouble right now. Mm. You're in big trouble. Cause I can tell you right now, who are my Rebbe? I mean, when we have an idea of something creative or a speaker that we're not sure whether we I have, I have Rebbeim, I have teachers, not just my wife and not just, um, you know, my parents who I'm very close with, but I, I have mentors, I have teachers. And if you can't answer that really quickly, who are your go-to people who help you keep your boundaries and who help you avoid the edge of the cliff and who are, are willing and able to give you the pushback when you need it, then you're, you're really vulnerable and you're really in trouble. Wow. That's a great place to stop. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. And uh, I learned so much from it. I'm really uh, grateful that you agreed to come on. And uh, I'm sorry about the technical details in the, in the middle. And for those listening, if you pick up on some of that stuff, we're doing this in Corona 2020 and uh, doing the best we can uh, with what we got. But uh, what, a, what a, a wealth of information and wisdom that you gave us. And I'm so, so appreciative. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm such an admirer. I've seen firsthand the benefits of your incredible work and I learned from them and I look forward to continue to learn from them. So thank you so much for having me. Stay thank healthy, you so much. stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family 
memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Kohn. Editing by Eitan Korenblum and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions. So please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.